Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. In 1921, the influential magazine Literary Digest speculated on the morality and nature of the modern young woman. It said, Is the old-fashioned girl, with all that she stands for in sweetness, modesty and innocence, in danger of becoming extinct? Or was she really no better nor worse than the up-to-date girl who in turn will become the old-fashioned girl to a later generation? Is it even possible, as a small but impressive minority would have us believe, that the girl of today has certain new virtues of frankness, sincerity, seriousness of purpose, lives on a higher level of morality, and is on the whole more clean-minded and clean-lived than her predecessors? The Roaring Twenties in America are, in popular culture at least, seen as the era of the liberated flapper, Daisy Buchanan, and all-night jazz. But is this really an accurate portrayal of womanhood, femininity, and beauty in the decade of return to normalcy? Today in American History 2, we'll discuss how femininity and beauty were perceived in 1920s America, and what role mass-market women's magazines had in reinforcing and changing stereotypes. <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 20 of American History 2. I'm Mark McClay and as always I'm joined by my co-host and newly minted lecturer at Liverpool John Moores University, Malcolm Craig. Hello Malcolm and congratulations. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, I'm delighted to be starting at LGMU in September. Uh, great history department, looking forward to teaching courses like the American Presidency, where I promise not to talk too much about Jimmy Carter, uh, and courses like the American Age. And also Liverpool is a fantastic city to live in, so that's a bit of a, a bonus. And also this is our first podcast where we're not in the room recording together. I know it feels awfully weird, and I wouldn't worry about the Jimmy Carter thing. Since he was only president for one term, it shouldn't be too hard to limit how much you talk about him. Um, but anyway, having having heavily focused on political history for the past couple of episodes, today we're going to go cultural, uh, consumer culture to be precise, and we're delighted to be joined by the University of Strathclyde's Rachel Alexander to discuss her work on women's magazines during the 1920s, while also kind of discussing the broader developments in American, uh, American women's lives during the decade. Hello, Rachel, and thank you very much for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I'm absolutely, absolutely thrilled to be here. And could you tell us a, bit, a kind of brief summary about your research? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so my current work, which is my PhD thesis, focuses on a comparison of American and Canadian mass market magazines in the period of the 1920s. So specifically here, I'm looking at um, the American title, the Ladies Home Journal, and the evidently Canadian, Canadian Home Journal. <laughs> um, so my background's in literature, but given the nature of the magazine as a textual 
visual and commercial objective study. This project's really interdisciplinary, bringing together literary perspectives with aspects of um, consumer culture theory. So I would consider my work to be within the growing field of what's known as periodical studies. And I think that the, the sort of crucial feature of this field is that it's committed to looking at instead of through magazines. So what, what I sort of mean by that is that while scholarly interest in magazines has a long history, um, more often than not, the content of the magazines have been considered as separate from the sort of magazine itself. So literary scholars will have looked at the magazine's fiction, but often out with the magazine itself, and the same for like historians with adverts and articles and so on. Um, so what I'm really doing is looking at these magazines as sort of complete multifaceted objects of study. So as collaborative literary texts, as cultural artifacts and as commercial products. So some of the questions that I've been thinking about are how did these magazines sort of function in diverse and often competing ways? And how did they construct and encourage their readers and um, to aspire to particular ideals of femininity and to what extent were these were these sort of processes nationally nationally specific. Cool. And just for example, if someone asked you what you were, are you a historian? Are you a literature person? What would you what would you say that you are? Um, I would definitely say uh, I'm, my background is definitely not in history. So I would say that I was definitely from from a literature background. We need to cancel the podcast, Malcolm. <laughs> is that me out? Is that me out? <laughs> typical, typical Mark McClee loves putting everyone in boxes. Yeah. <laughs> well, obviously, it's all very interdisciplinary, so it does it does have to engage um, with sort of the historical and cultural context, um, because obviously it's in the period of the nineteen twenties. But sort of my background is definitely in literature. Yeah. But don't don't you know hold that against me? No, I think as historians, we're just threatened when anyone <laughs> actually tries to you know do this interdisciplinary thing. Um, so uh, to move on to the actual uh, topic that we're going to discuss today, I think before we get into magazines and everything, um, it might be helpful just to think a wee bit about women during the 1920s and a bit more broadly about how historians have perceived women's lives during the decade. And I can have one big question, and I've always thought this since I ever, we used to have a class that we taught in the course, me and Malcolm, the classes on women in the 1920s. And and it's related to the concept of flappers, these sort of seemingly carefree and empowered women who were out drinking and behaving however they pleased, um, as opposed to the old sort of adhering to the strict morals that were imposed by society before then. And I've always been really sceptical of the importance of flappers, sort of viewing them as such a minority of the population, white, urban, wealthy. And I've always sort of thought historians, or some historians at least, have overstated their significance. As someone who's particularly knowledgeable about this topic. Am I right uh, to have this sort of disdain for the importance of the flapper? Or is are they actually as important as popular perceptions of that decade suggest? Um, I think that that's that's actually a really a really good point. Um, in terms of in terms of lived experience, uh, the flapper really did only represent a very limited number of women, and I think that this is one of the things that's really highlighted by looking at these these examples of mass market magazines. So, for their intended readership, the improvement of the domestic environment and the projection of a successful image of the self as wife, mother hostess and fashionable women remained highest on their list of priorities. So that's uh, really an opposition to the sort of the whole notion of the flapper. But I don't think that that necessarily diminishes 
um, the importance of the flapper as as an image or as an ideal. So there's a reason why, um, like when the 1920s are mentioned, especially in the context of North America, it's the flapper who springs most readily to mind. Um, and it's perhaps maybe because as far as images of femininity go, she's come to be symbolic of so many things. Um, so social change and controversy and shifts in gender paradigms and the decline, like you said, of, of traditional models of morality. Um, or perhaps it might be because um, visually she's so recognisable with like a short bobbed hair and her slender androgynous figure or more revealing kind of loose fitting clothes. Um, but I mean, as an image, the flapper was ever present in like what might be referred to as sort of more smart magazines um, such as Vogue, Harper's Bazaar and Vanity Fair throughout the 1920s. What, what do you mean when you say smart magazines? Just... Um, so the smart magazines, like the ones that I've just mentioned, um, they, they're sort of distinct, although not entirely separate from the magazines that I'm looking at in that they addressed an audience which was slightly more socially elevated, so mm-hmm. with a bit more money um, and with sort of more of an interest in perhaps what could be associated with like sort of modernism, so modernist literature and, and so on and so forth. So uh-huh. that's the kind of distinction, although I think it's, it's really important to note that as with most categories, I mean, these weren't, these weren't really sort of distinct yeah. and they were quite porous in terms of their boundaries. So, so, so the flapper comes in a lot in the smart magazines. Then. Absolutely, absolutely. Especially with like sort of her, her visual her visual styles. And um, in, in her study of women's magazines, Carolyn Kitch, which it's a, a book called The Girl on the Magazine Cover, which is an amazing, amazing resource for, for sort of inquiries of these kinds. Um, she says that the flapper, um, in terms of, the concept of change, the concept of change was strongly gendered feminine. And the flapper was the newest of all versions of the new woman. And I think that that's, that's actually quite accurate. Because um, she she sort of embodied a drastic difference from her sort of turn of the century mother in her appearance, in her disconnection from the home, uh, and sort of domestic life in general, and her participation, like you'd said, in the traditionally kind of masculine activities of like drinking and smoking, sort of to name to name but a few and she the, the sort of idea of the flapper um frequently attracted criticism and contempt for her sort of frivolity her allegedly ludicrous styles and immoral behavior and that was particularly evident in the daily press um which is obviously not to say that you know she wasn't critiqued in, in the mass market magazines but probably not to the same to the same kind of extent um, but in some contexts, obviously, she was the prevailing feminine ideal, both in terms of beauty and also in lifestyle. And she was situated as the aspirational example for the female reader of those fashionable, smart publications whose covers she graced. Um, and the visual trends of, um, associated with her uh, certainly had a wider influence than that. So in terms of lived experience, then um, she was absolutely not representative of, you know, sort of the average woman in the 1920s, but her influence in terms of an aspirational or at times dangerous kind of image was considerable. 
So fantastic! I was uh, sorry. I was li- I was listening kind of like quietly there because that was incredibly <laughs> informative, and I wish I'd had that kind of thing to say when we were teaching classes on women in the nineteen twenties in the in the United States. So I'd like to to move on, if possible, to to specifically to your research, Rachel, on your magazine culture in this in this period. And there's a comment you made in the introduction to. Uh, an article of yours that Mark and I both read, excellent article uh, in the Irish Journal of American Studies, uh, which I think we'll be tweeting out a link for and putting up on our, our Facebook page. And you quote the scholar uh, Liz Connor uh, saying, in the 1920s, vision was privileged above other senses. And that, I mean, that kind of is quite a fascinating way to think about the, the decade that for in this period, vision is privileged above other senses. And I was wondering if you could talk a little m- bit more about this before we get into the magazines themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for those kind comments about my article. I can't believe we both read it. Um, yeah, Liz Connor's book, um, The Spectacular Modern Woman, is a really excellent resource for anybody who's sort of interested in sort of feminine visibility in the 1920s. And I think uh, that her comment is a really good way of thinking about the period, particularly in the context of sort of encroaching modernity. Um, so when we think about the 1920s and the importance of sort of technological developments in photography and film sort of specifically, it makes sense that the visual would gain a sort of unprecedented level of importance. So photography and film stimulated the circulation of images, especially to borrow Mar- Marta Banta's phrase, um, women as image so serving and promoting what was an increasingly image-based culture so one in which images of things especially sort of products and celebrities um, circulated far more widely than the real items um, and this encouraged sort of aspirations which were often positioned as achievable through consumption of sort of certain products or or services and the increasing, increasingly visual culture and the sort of burgeoning consumer culture then, I think, are sort of intrinsically linked, um, encouraging what Joan Shelley Rubin in her discussion of Middlebrow culture refers to as a shift from 19th century notions of character, which were sort of based on a sort of a spiritual and internal goodness is primarily important, um, towards a notion of personality being primarily important, so more based on display and sort of superficial charm. So I think um, all of these sort of interlinked shifts uh, make the 1920s a really fascinating period to consider, especially as um, some critics have viewed the period as the earnest beginnings of sort of contemporary consumerism and also mass-marketed ideals of femininity. And I will come back towards the end of the podcast, towards that issue of cinema, which is something that I'm you know, particularly interested in, you know, the evolution of American movies and all that. But I believe, Mark, you've got a, another question for Rachel. Yeah, so, I mean, thinking about the, the magazines themselves then, um, now we've given them the big build-up. Um, <laughs> I mean, as you make clear, you know, women's magazines such as Ladies' Home Journal, uh, the one you particularly look at along with the Canadian Home, uh, Canadian Home Journal? Yes. 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 Uh, which gained, you know, mass popularity during the 1920s, or already had gained mass popularity, but it exploded even more, have been pilloried, you know, held up as horrible things by many historians and by feminist activists for encouraging women to remain within the sort of domestic sphere and to focus on things like beauty rather than on careers or other achievements. I mean, where do you stand on this debate? Uh, have, have these magazines had an unfair rap? I think 
um, women's magazines are a really, really tricky subject in that regard. And and you're totally right. Much of the much of the critical discussion of women's magazines um, tends to focus on the perceived fostering of insecurities amongst readers. So from Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique to Naomi Wolf's recent um, book, The Beauty Myth, women's magazines are perceived as like sort of inherently bad in that they encourage millions of women to occupy a primarily traditional domestic role and focus their efforts on attracting and retaining a husband and on the cultivation of appearance rather than intellect. Um, But recently, though, criticism has emerged, which sort of builds on whilst also revising this sort of widespread view of the women's magazine as a sinister and manipulative commercial and cultural object. So here I'm thinking of uh, Margaret Beetham's, a magazine of her own in which she considers domesticity and desire in British uh, Victorian magazines, and Amy Bethel Ronson's Taking Liberties, which focuses more on sort of antebellum American magazines. So both of these critics consider the ways in which women's magazines sort of function as feminised spaces and the role of women themselves in this kind of context. Okay, so you've given us the big build-up and all the caveats, but what's your actual opinion, Rachel? Um, So, as for my own opinion, (laughs) I think that the reading of women's magazines as entirely toxic um, is perhaps an oversimplification, but I, I, of course, wouldn't argue that these magazines were entirely beneficial. So, for me... Um, This is sort of best understood through borrowing Caroline Levine's use of the term affordances, um, which was she discusses in her recent book, um, Forms. So it's a term that Levine, who is from a who's also from a literature background, (laughs) she borrows it from design theory, and it basically refers to the fact that design designed objects afford more uses than their original design intended through interaction with imaginative users so one of the examples that that she gives is like a fork which is obviously designed for eating food but through interaction with imaginative users the designed object the fork affords other additional and perhaps unexpected uses so like opening a paint can or stabbing someone in the leg so ah you've had dinner with mark (laughs) (laughs) Only the ones, only the ones. Um, So when we apply this sort of um, term affordances to magazines, this allows for consideration of of them as designed objects which afford both sort of harm and help. So they they can reinforce unrealistic ideals and patriarchal norms, and perhaps that is maybe their design purpose. But... They can also provide helpful advice and perhaps reel against sort of patriarchal norms through the provision of a feminized space in which standards of femininity uh, can be sort of negotiated and renegotiated and also in their sort of um, development of a a sort of community of readers. Um, So although this sounds a wee bit like sitting on the fence. Uh, it sounds is... a lot like the sitting on the fence. <laughs> well, I think that this explanation for me takes into account how these magazines, and indeed sort of magazines in general, function in seemingly contradictory ways sort of simultaneously. And just a, a very quick follow-up, and you don't have to go into much detail on this, is there a big difference in terms of 
the magazines being better at not being patriarchal, like in terms of in terms of being difference between highbrow and middlebrow, different sort of culture. Is it is is there a is there a consistent pattern, or is that not something that that actually matters at all? It's just each individual magazine can. Um. So. And specifically in the context of like the sort of 1920s magazines, I think that they're, they sort of went on a bit of a spectrum. So the Ladies Home Journal is a particularly sort of conservative example. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it did definitely reinforce sort of traditional gender roles and at times particularly, in a sort of a particularly authoritative or sometimes patronising kind <laughs> of way. But some titles, um, so like I think... Good housekeeping. Um, it seemed a little, a little less conservative. So it sounds again, like a, ra- like a, sounds like a radical magazine. <laughs> well, it's, it's still it's, it's successful, seeing as it's still on the go today. But like um, sort of magazines such as Vanity Fair, which wasn't specifically a women's magazine, but that was questioning um, of sort of traditional traditional rules and things like that. Um, magazines like Vogue again. Because it was sort of mm. aimed at a slightly more elevated, elevated audience, um, they could kind of afford to get away with being a little more, risky. a little more, a little more risky. Yeah, okay. definitely. So, I mean, that's. I'm interested in the kind of the way that uh, you know in your work, uh, you seem to kind of want to move, you know, slightly away from this this not entirely away from the debate, but slightly away from this debate to, to look at how much of the material contained within these magazines was, you know, harmful values of, of harmful. And and also why these magazines were so popular. Because from my limited understanding, Ladies Home Journal particularly was just a, a, a real success story and a great staple of the, of the era. So, you know, would you, you know, be able to kind of like respond to that a little bit? Um, yeah, like I think that I think you're absolutely right. The the Ladies Home Journal was a complete staple of the era, and um, I think it was important in sort of numerous ways. So first of all, it was exceptionally commercially successful. So it was produced by the Curtis Publishing Company, um, who also published the Saturday Evening Post. And as many people have commented, um, it was the most commercially successful of the sort of early women's mass market magazines. So it was the first magazine um, to reach a million paid subscribers in 1903. And that's not just amongst women's magazines, that's just amongst sort of mass market magazines in general. So published by Cyrus Curtis uh, and edited initially by his wife, Louisa, the magazine sort of led the, the real union of reading, consuming and advertising with gendered assumptions about middle-class women who were, as Jennifer Scanlon points out, the darlings of the advertisers. Um, So when Louisa stepped down as editor in 1890, uh, the infamous Edward Bock took over and was editor of the publication until 1919. And he really sort of cemented the magazine as as a success. So building on the initial success, um, he placed sort of consumer choice at its centre and ensured that every issue featured sort of the latest in dresses, hairstyles, decorating, and consumer products, but obviously, you know, circumscribed by by middle class middle class norms. Yeah, uh, just just a quick point to pick up on there. You mentioned that 
during its most successful period when it really took off, you've got a, a man editing it. And I was just wondering how often you have men editing women's journals um, or if it's if it's not a common thing or if it was the, the done thing or not. I was just intrigued as to who really has the power at these institutions. Mm-hmm. I think it's, um, it's a mixture, really. Like, definitely with the ladies' home journal, obviously it was Edward Bock and then um, there were a couple of changes in editors, but up until... 1928 it was always men who were um sort of editing these these journals and it was um only in 1928 when Lawrence Schuler took over that's the the sort of next time that the ladies home journal had had a sort of female female editor with the Canadian home journal um Jean Graham was the editor throughout the period so it was quite common to have sort of certainly even if it wasn't female editors there was an awful lot of female writing mm-hmm. in these publications. And um, so I would say in the main, the Canadian Home Journal had had more of more women in the sort of editorial staff than the ladies' home journal did. So in themselves they're already sort of progressive institutions to work at because the, you know, in terms of this is an era when teaching is about the most expansive mm-hmm. era. Um sorry, it's the most expansive sort of job that women seem to be able to attain on a regular basis. Um, but I mean, to be a journalist, to be an editor of a magazine, you know, that's quite progressive in itself. Mm-hmm. To a certain extent, I would say that that's, that's true. Um, but I think it, that there's a huge tension there mm-hmm. because obviously these magazines were still championing like the sort of the home and domesticity as, you know, the sort of the ultimate calling. So even by having sort of women on staff, that kind of goes against that. Yeah. And so it, it sort of raised these these different tensions, which which did have to be reconciled. So a particularly good example of that is uh, a woman called Christine Frederick, who contributed to the Ladies' Home Journal um, and also wrote what is like sort of seen as one of the first kind of like marketing texts called Selling Mrs. Consumer. And... She's a really good example because obviously she was still portraying herself in her writing as a housewife, but obviously she wasn't. She was mm-hmm. sort of more of a full-time writer, but the only way that she could negotiate that tension was to portray herself mm-hmm. as sort of still being within that domestic role. So I think it's a really, there's a lot of tensions that are raised and it's a really interesting, yeah, interesting point to look at. Well, I was just interested about all the kind of the, the aspects you talked about, your stuff that was contained within the, the Ladies' Home Journal. Did they, when we get to kind of the, the 1910s and into the 1920s with the emergence of, of Hollywood and an American movie industry, do they comment or kind of give features on other aspects of popular culture, you know, films, books, theatre, all? Yeah, they do. They definitely do. So um, in terms of in terms of film... Um, sort of, they often had uh, adverts uh, for like sort of Paramount Pictures and things like that. And I'm thinking here specifically, well, more specifically of the Ladies' Home Journal because obviously, you know, sort of, it's it was a particularly American institution. Um, and we can maybe come back to that a wee bit later on by the by the Canadian Home Journal was a wee bit reluctant to encourage mm. that. <laughs> Excuse me. And um, but they did. They included some features on sort of art, culture, films and things like that. Um, although those were a relatively small proportion. What was more common was certainly um, sort of interviews with what, who were perceived as um, sort of wholesome 
movie stars. Um, so they would sometimes have interviews. Um, they would also sometimes use like sort of female celebrities for for the fashion spreads and things like that. So in that in that regard, they were definitely engaging in this sort of this sort of changing mm-hmm. culture um, and sort of films in that in that sort of regard with books. Um, obviously, the magazines published an awful lot of an awful lot of fiction. Uh, that was really one of their main main sort of selling points. Um, and obviously, this is the era. This, this is before the sort of era of the the cheap paperback. So, for sort of middle class audiences, magazines really were their sort of primary source of fiction. So, both the Canadian Home Journal and the Ladies Home Journal, and numerous other sort of magazines at the time, um, published short stories, serialized novels, and it was it was it was a real selling point. Um, of of the publications there, and they also did things like um, I'm thinking particularly of the Canadian Home Journal. So they would have they had a regular at the beginning of the 1920s. They had a regular column called the Book Corner, and so they would like sort of review specific mm-hmm. books, always without fail, Canadian titles by Canadian authors <laughs> without fail. So again, that's sort of showing how they were trying to engage with sort of a wider cultural context. But in the case of the Canadian Home Journal specifically in relation to their nationalist project. Cool. Well, I, th- I think what, having you, you brought up the Canadians' uh, sense of protectiveness over their own work, it's probably a good point to move on to actually ask you why you decided to compare the American Ladies' Home Journal with its Canadian counterpart. And, you know, was there any big thing you sort of, big takeaways you learned from the comparison? Mm-hmm. Um, so at present, as far as I'm, as far as I'm aware, uh, there are no sort of extended comparative studies of American and Canadian magazines. Um, and perhaps one of the reasons why scholars have been a bit reluctant to undertake comparative studies of them um, is the perceived notion of Canadian periodicals as derivative, rather unflatteringly, derivative <laughs> of uh, their American counterparts or inferior in, in sort of quality. Um, of course, like the mainstream magazines in Canada were markedly influenced <clears throat> by their sort of American predecessors. And given their smaller circulation numbers and their lower advertising revenue, uh, they didn't have the same kind of resources as the American titles. So they were generally shorter and more cheaply produced. Uh, also, in the main, the Canadian titles were established a bit later than their their sort of American counterparts. So 1905 for the Canadian Home Journal as opposed to 1883 for the Ladies Home Journal. Um, so obviously they were going to make use of the now recognisable like stylistic and economic models which had been sort of tried and tested in the United States. But even in this, it's sort of clear that the magazine cultures of the US and Canada are bound together through a, set of, a complex set of relationships um, which can perhaps be best understood through through a sort of a comparative consideration. So the 1920s was a period of tremendous importance for the Canadian magazines, particularly because magazines were understood as crucial to the cultural nationalist project, um, and particularly in relation to sort of encroaching American Americanization. And I think that the Canadian Home Journal is a particularly useful example of the ways in which nationalism was mobilised in the Canadian magazines. So the magazine followed the same general model as the Ladies Home Journal insofar as it contained a similar mixture of um, fiction and articles, advice and advertising. And aesthetically, 
the, the two publications are remarkably similar. So they use sort of very similar page arrangements and similar typefaces and their covers look quite similar. Um, so while, while the ladies in general, um, as Richard Oman comments, penetrated into areas of personal and social concern previously kept apart from culture and the medium of magazines, if not in other sectors of American society. The same is arguably true when applied to the Canadian Home Journal and Canadian society. Okay, and I was, I was just wondering as well, I mean, in a previous podcast, when we discussed the Scopes trial, we noticed that we talked about this, this, this distinction between rural America and urban America. Um, and even urban suburban and um, in the comparison I understand like, from reading your article that you found that the Canadian one the Canadian Home Journal was perhaps a bit more conservative because it was targeting more rural readers whereas you have the Ladies Home Journal in America starting to tap into this new suburban urban you know the the, the extreme the flapper sort of mm-hmm. ideal um, I was wondering if you just talk a bit more about that yeah um, so I think with with the Canadian Home Journal, I think it continued to be really influenced by notions of sort of pioneer femininity. So obviously Canada was was far more sparsely populated than than the United States. Um, and so interestingly though, I mean I think urbanization was perhaps moving at a similar sort of sort of pace mm-hmm. uh, across both of the countries, but because Obviously, Canada was so much more sparsely populated. I think that that sort of had a bit of an influence, but definitely, like sort of notions of, of pioneer femininity, of like sort of practicality and thrift and sort of frugality, really kind of continued to endure. And I think in the ladies' home journal, when we kind of consider that in comparison, it seems it does seem more suburban in scope. So it seems to have moved slightly beyond the the purely practical. And onto um, sort of charm and variety and leisure. Mm-hmm. Definitely, leisure seems to be far more of a focus and more of an interest for the Ladies Home Journal than the Canadian Home Journal. And I think it's those kind of comparisons that are really rendered, mm-hmm. those kind of contrasts rather that are really rendered sort of explicit by by a comparative study. So yeah, moving on from from those, were there any particular mass market magazines that take you know? Because we've been kind of talking about the kind of the, the you know these two particular journals and you know being slightly conservative and kind of you know encouraging participation in the the domestic sphere and all these kind of things. Were there any magazines, popular magazines, that took us a, a more alternative approach to w- womanhood? You know, politi- encouraging political, commercial, or wider participation in American or Canadian life. Uh, and so, I mean, this being the era of you know thinking of pe- you know people like Charlotte Gilman, Ch- Carrie Chapman, Car- Alice Paul, and you know other campaigners for equality, women's rights, the political franchise, and so on. So, were there magazines that commented on on these issues, or did these mass market magazines also comment on these issues? Mm-hmm. Um, there were there were some magazines which took a sort of a consistently and expressly feminist stance at the time, so such as the the Women's Journal, uh, which was later the Women's Citizen. But these weren't really mass market publications, um, so they weren't really they didn't really engage in, in the commercial to the same extent, and they certainly didn't have the circulation uh, a circulation that was compatible to that of like sort of the Ladies Home Journal or Canadian Home Journal. Um, but obviously that isn't to say that magazines, including the Ladies Home Journal and Canadian Home Journal, didn't 
encourage an interest in politics or in American or Canadian life beyond the home. And actually they did, the Ladies Home Journal and Canadian Home Journal did so in, in sort of slightly different ways. But like one of the one of the dominant characteristics of magazines is the fact that they are multi-authored texts, meaning that they often contain diverse and at times really contradictory perspectives. So the Ladies Home Journal um, published articles regarding politics, um, encouraging their readers to vote and keep abreast of sort of developments in what has been traditionally thought of as the public sphere. But in the Ladies and Journal, these interests were always circumscribed by the home and by traditional domestic rules. So, for example, um, in the August 1920 issue, there was an of the Ladies Home Journal, sorry, there was an article titled Thrift and the American Women. So um, it was well, written by, by future president Herbert <coughs> Hoover. Yeah. Uh-huh, by the, <laughs> then future president Herbert Hoover. And uh, so when he's discussing the dangers of extravagance and big prices, he states, and I'm quoting here, all this is not just something for statesmen and professors to worry over, but reaches into the American home and affects every family and every individual. So the article discusses economics and encourages an interest in the national economy, but the interest is justified for the women readers uh, because it relates to the home. Um, So in contrast, the Canadian Home Journal was more liable to construct its readership as citizens, emphasising political and commercial engagement. And again, this difference is largely informed by the nationalist project in Canada and can perhaps be best described as a sort of a maternal feminism. Can you just quickly uh, say what the nationalist project in Canada was, since you've mentioned it a couple of times now? Yeah, absolutely. So um, in terms of... uh, at the time, obviously, encroaching Americanization was a huge concern. Um, the Canadian national identity was certainly certainly not as secure as that of America. And also, it was still sort of America, um, Canada at the time uh, was still firmly part of the empire. Mm-hmm. Um, so their sort of national identity was in this kind of limbo where it was sort of attached to British mm-hmm. identity, but trying to like sort of carve itself out as, as sort of a specific nation in its own right. And obviously the sort of Americanization was, was really perceived as a huge, huge threat to that. And um, I think that this really manifests in the magazines um, quite frequently. So Canadian readers and Canadians in general were encouraged to buy Canadian products rather than American products and encouraged to read Canadian literature and buy Canadian magazines. Um, and so that really informed the sense of this really strong sense of Canadianness, as much as it was a bit fuzzy mm-hmm. and sort of not very well defined. Like that really, it, it, you can really see it in, in all of the Canadian, Canadian publications. And so in one of our previous podcasts, we covered uh, prohibition in the United States and the role that women played in in both initiating and repealing uh, the ban on alcohol. And just kind of you know, to, almost to follow up to that particular podcast, did any of the magazines that you you, know, t- you look at, did they take a particular stance on prohibition? And, and if they did, does it change over time during the 1920s? Mm-hmm. Um, well, the Ladies Home Journal um, being in the main, a sort of a, a sort of a vigorously conservative <laughs> publication uh, throughout supported prohibition, um, and it published articles sort of which ranged 
Reached from like a series written by Samuel Crowther titled "Where Public Where Prohibition Is a Success" um, to sort of exposes on the horrendous world of nightclubs. Um, Which the journalists themselves would have to have attended uh, uh, and spent I mean, hours at to you know get, get an in depth view of them. Some good research in there. <laughs> some good research. Uh, um, but yeah, the, the Ladies Home Journal constructed itself in accordance with a sort of a particularly conservative morality and all. All that it contained, albeit to sort of varying degrees, reflected this from the articles to the fiction to the advice. Um, it also actually provided uh, recipes for like non-alcoholic drinks um, and offered like sort of um, ladies' home journal helpful books <laughs> containing those kind of recipes. And that could that could perhaps be read as a, an attempt to demonstrate that a lack of alcohol didn't sort of preclude success as a hostess. So you could still, you know through a wonderful party um, without actually having to engage with alcohol as well. Um, so some other magazines that like McCall's and Good Housekeeping began to began to demonstrate a questioning of prohibition sort of in the early early 1930s, but that shift in attitudes was uh, certainly nowhere to be found <laughs> in the pages of the Ladies' Home Journal. You look outraged, Malcolm. I'm not, I'm just fascinated by the concept of a non-alcoholic drink. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, uh, if we move away <laughs> from magazines and think a bit about, about beauty in, in the 1920s, and I'm just going to put it to you very bluntly and we'll see if you can straddle the fence here again. <laughs> uh, what did it mean to be beautiful in 1920s America? <laughs> um, well, generally generally speaking, sort of ideals of beauty in the 1920s did sort of follow the styles of the flapper, albeit... Um, somewhat restrained for sort of middle class audiences so the styles which are perhaps um sort of the ones which perhaps most readily spring to mind are fairly accurate so the bobbed hair and the loose fitting clothes and the slim figures so in the case of the latter with the slim figures it's particularly evident uh, across the majority of magazines um from from vogue to the ladies home journal um, and numerous articles encouraged the management of diets and uh, appropriate exercise, um, such as like one article with the title "Why We Get Fat and What We Do About It." So, <laughs> like, it definitely a slim figure was certainly very important um, in terms of sort of facial beauty and to an extent, like sort of the figure as well. Youth was a really crucial idea, both in the Ladies Home Journal and Can- Canadian Home Journal, and. The commercial, both the commercial and the editorial content, um, idealised a youthful appearance. So in the early 1920s, like natural appearance um, was sort of championed as the ideal. But that's not to say that there was no effort or work involved in this. So in fact, much like sort of like the natural makeup trends of today, this involved substantial attention and care. So beauty products, and I, I refer to these products as beauty products because they were positioned as aids to natural beauty. So things like soap, night creams, shampoos, etc., positioned themselves through the commercial content as sort of aids to natural beauty. And women were really encouraged to pay very close attention to their appearance, to be their own harshest critic, as one I'd put it. And adverts which featured women being looked at by men or looking at themselves in mirrors or reflections were everywhere. And again, that kind of ties in with the notion of the visual being privileged 
above above all other senses. Yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, we don't really have time to go into it today, but it really is the era of the rise of mass advertising, isn't mm-hmm. it, in the 1920s? And obviously the first target for the advertising was almost always women because mm-hmm. they were perceived to be the one who controlled the family budget um, yep. and therefore spent it. So they were often the target of these of these lovely idealised ads. <laughs> Malcolm? Yeah, no, so, no, sorry, I'm returning to my kind of like, you know, hobby horse of American cinema in the 1920s. <laughs> Uh, it's just it, it's, with cinema is a thing that fasc- fascinates me. I'm, I'm really interested in kind of, I mean, the rise of mass cinema going, and the prominence of kind of early movie stars, you know, like you know Theda Barra, Gloria Swanson, Greta Garbo, and and so on. Did that influence what it meant to be beautiful in America, or were movie stars simply because they met a preconceived ideal that already existed? Um, I think that the increasing visibility of women, like so, from from the sort of silver screen to the to the pages of magazines, certainly increased the importance of beauty. So, in the sense that it was arguably a more pressing concern for women, I suppose it did sort of change what it meant to be beautiful. Um, in terms of sort of specific trends and fashions, uh, movie stars were used in a sort of a similar way to the fashion illustrations and the cover pages of magazines, sort of as visual iconography, which communicated a particular ideal. But I mean, these ideals, um, as can be seen from like the shift from like sort of Gibson girl with like sort of very feminine hair and cinched in waists, um, which was common in like sort of the 19th century to the to the sort of flapper of the early 20th century. We can see that these ideals aren't aren't static. And I think that the best way to understand the role played by movie stars and conceptions of beauty is to is to view them or rather the images, the images of them as entering into a sort of a wider discourse of beauty. Um, so again, one one in which the range of images and discussions can contributed to the construction of idealized visual attributes. So in this, their their sort of influence can be understood as part of a wider, increasingly visual culture. So one thing that really, I think, exemplifies this is the way in which movie stars like Lillian Gish and Mary Pickford uh, were commonly featured in the fashion editorials in the Ladies Home Journal. So demonstrating the way in which these women's these women were deployed as aspirational images, um, sort of engaging with wider negotiations of like different standards mm. standards of beauty. So in many ways, still similar to how it is today. Yeah, yeah not 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 too much. The more things change, the more they stay the same kind mm-hmm. of principle. So I mean, to begin to round this section up before we we move on uh, to conclude. I mean, another aspect of your work that I found really fascinating reading the article was the discussion of how makeup was perceived throughout American history, going all the way back to the antebellum era. And can you, can you talk about how, how it was perceived in the early 20th century and how this has evolved by the 1920s? Yeah, um, absolutely. So this is, this is definitely one of the aspects of this project that I've found sort of the most, the most fascinating. Um, so as Kathy Pice comments on her, in her like, amazing book on the American beauty industry called Hope in a Jar, um, the face in, in sort of 19th century Western Western culture was a particularly meaningful site of expression, beauty and character. And so this meant that in the 19th century, makeup use presented a real moral 
dilemma. So given that facial beauty was so closely associated with like spiritual beauty and goodness of character, to alter the face to try and improve appearance was tantamount to sort of deception. So this view in the context of 19th century middle class culture went beyond sort of mistrust to a really deep-seated fear with the manipulation of appearance perceived as undermining the integrity of society, which sounds a bit extreme, but that is that is genuinely how... They took the issue seriously back then. They sure <laughs> did. They sure did. So the notion of like the immoral painted woman is one is one real example of this. Um, so as the reasoning went, by making yourself more beautiful, you could fool people into thinking that you were really like a lovely person when in fact you were like a total horror. So the equation of makeup uh, with masks, disguises and immorality really retained its hold on Western middle class consciousness into the early 20th century. And so This sounds like the world was run by the Free Church of Scotland at this point. <laughs> So, so with that in mind, <laughs> it's it's maybe unsurprising that the Ladies' Home Journal really continued to be be informed by these notions. So, um, there's an editorial in the in the February 1922 issue of the Ladies' Home Journal um, titled "The Importance of Being Beautiful," which I think really really demonstrates how how sort of how much this this notion really continued to be to be viewed as important so in it the editor barton curry is addressing a letter sent in by uh, mr earl of pawtucket um in which he asks sort of is it really so, so important in you know the contemporary context with women having jobs and things like that that women are beautiful is it really that important and so the editor barton curry replies and I quote, we doubt, however, if the importance to women of being beautiful will ever diminish. We pray not. Her interest in dress and adornment is inevitable. But what there is hope for is a new scorn of current modes of embellishment and camouflage devised to create or to simulate beauty. And I think that this really highlights the sort of tension that, that beauty presented. And is this not also, is that not the same year that the Miss America contest begins, I believe? I think it's, 1920, it's the early 1920s when Miss America becomes a thing. Oh, yeah. God, you're totally putting me on the spot. I'm not 100%. <laughs> no, no. But yeah, it definitely starts yeah. in the early 1920s. Um, so it's interesting that around everything that you're discussing, all of a sudden beauty then becomes a contest, yeah. quite literally. Uh, um, definitely. Um, Liz Connor, in her in her spectacular modern women book that I, that I mentioned mentioned earlier she does like sort of focus on beauty contests and things like that so it's definitely she views it as part of this sort of increasingly visual culture whereby um sort of the performance of femininity had to take place in in a more sort of public way yeah in, in order to be successful um but yeah so i think yeah like i was saying about the the sort of tensions that this presented so women are expected to be beautiful and fashion like like that's that's an absolutely fine way of doing that so it's like a commodity solution for constructing a beautiful body but makeup which is really a commodity solution for constructing a beautiful face is totally unacceptable and so with that with that in mind and in the context of the sort of ever increasing importance of beauty it's really no wonder that attitudes towards makeup 
did begin to relax. So after all beauty and after all fashion and makeup are really both sort of techniques of display. So ways in which women are supposed to create their identity from a variety of, of sort of commodities. Um, and they really crucially served the same sort of, sort of function. So by the late 1920s, uh, makeup was being regularly advertised in both the Ladies' Home Journal and the Canadian Home Journal. And perhaps sort of more tellingly, the makeup was like being commented on in, within the editorial content also. So for example, um, in an article which appeared in the September 1927 issue of the Ladies' Home Journal, one writer stated... And again, I'm quoting here. We don't think it insincere to dress the figure beautifully. Why should it be to dress one's face? And so I think that, that really exposes the sort of justification for the increasing acceptance of makeup um, and that sort of makeup had been co-opted into the discourse of fashion and trends. And this combined with like the presentation of makeup as a commodity solution to insuffi- insufficient beauty allowed for, for makeup to be positioned as sort of more morally acceptable. But of course, like excessive use of makeup was still perceived as problematic. And ideals of beauty were, at least in these titles, always circumscribed by traditional mm-hmm. domestic gender roles. But it is a significant shift in sort of acceptable beauty practices. And I think if we think about the beauty industry now, it's so closely linked with women's magazines. And so this like this sort of interaction, I would argue, started really in earnest in, in the period of the 1920s. That is absolutely fascinating. I never thought about that before, about the, the 1920s being the kind of zero of a, a lot of this stuff. That's, this has been such a great learning experience. This is brilliant. <laughs> uh, I mean, think, thinking about that as well, as a kind of final question for you, Rachel, wh- where do you think this research can, can go? Are there other areas you think connected to this that are underexplored that you would like to explore in the future? Um, I think that, generally speaking, magazines um, magazines have sort of been considered, in this regard, and viewing them as like sort of collaborative texts and cultural artefacts and things like that, up until fairly recently, they were sort of considered somewhat superfluous to kind of literary history. And um, so there's, and obviously there's a huge archive out there. So with the with the magazines that I've been looking at, and so I think, that, I don't, I'm not sure if I'd mentioned earlier on about the sort of the size of the Ladies' Home Journal issues. Did I mention that? I don't think so. Okay, so the Ladies' Home Journal, um, in term, they were much bigger than sort of contemporary magazines. So probably about an A3 kind of size and their print was incredibly small and they averaged about 200 pages per issue. So when you think that that's, you know, obviously 12, 12 issues a year and if you're looking at mm. a decade, there's so much material in there that it's, it almost becomes like too much. So you could, you could really talk about them in, in different kind of ways endlessly endlessly but I think because of the sort of increasing scholarly attention to to sort of the field of periodical studies and especially sort of digitization projects which are making making these magazines more accessible um I think that that's something that's something that's that's sort of really valuable in terms of looking at the sort of print cultures and how how sort of 
magazines were important in terms in that sort of regard. Okay, so I'm going to be a little bit cheeky and try and squeeze in one final question because the historian inside of me has wants to know having having looked um, at all these the, the magazines and the, the sort of from a cultural angle rather than the typical political angle that historians sometimes look for. Do you think, in terms of women in the 1920s, it's a decade of progress? Uh, for for women, as it's as it's often thought as being, um, or or would you push back on that characterisation? Um, I think. Oh God, I'm going to totally sit in the fence again. I'm gonna, <laughs> uh, I think in some ways, in some ways it was, but I don't think that it was as progressive as previous periods. And this is, I think, for me. I would say that it seems to be uh, a period in which the sort of new women ideals, which were like the sort of standard in the 1890s, were being sort of sort of commercialised to an extent. And so women's freedom was increasingly being positioned as women's freedom to choose to be a housewife, to mm-hmm. choose to buy different products. And so in that regard, I would say it's perhaps not from obviously just in the context of these magazines mm-hmm. yeah. and not beyond it. From that from that perspective, um certainly these these magazines weren't weren't quite as progressive. But obviously later periods, like for example with the Canadian Home Journal, um, there was a publication which is Chatelaine, which eventually absorbed in 1958, I think it was, um, it absorbed the Canadian Home Journal, and that was more feminist in scope, and that was produced sort of at the end of the into the 1920s. But I think definitely, um, I know, God, I'm totally sitting on the fence. No, that's fine. No, that's what that's what all good historians actually do. <laughs> so well, in some ways, <laughs> in some ways, it was pretty progressive. I know there's not so much there. Yeah, well, I have I have a small portable fence that I take to conferences. With me. <laughs> Just so I can sit on it while giving papers. It's fine. It's a good plan. <laughs> and on uh, that lovely note, uh, well, thank you very much, Rachel, for joining us. Uh, that's been excellent. Um, Malcolm, we have conquered the new frontier, hopefully, if this has worked. Yes, hopefully. Yeah, thank you again, Rachel. That was absolutely brilliant. Fascinating stuff. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's been an absolute joy. Cool. And thank you to you all for listening. Uh, we'll be back next month with the University College of London's Matt Griffin, who's going to discuss transatlantic anti-slavery movements during the 19th century. Uh, don't say we don't do a wide range of topics on American History Too. Thank you very much and goodbye. Goodbye. A brown and yellow basket I send a letter to my mommy On the way I dropped it I dropped it, I dropped it Yes, on the way I dropped it A little girly picked it up And put it in her pocket She was trucking on down the avenue not a single thing to do She went peck, peck, pecking all around When she spied it on the ground She took it, she took it My little yellow basket And if she doesn't bring it back I think that I will die